Welcome, everybody. You are listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I am your host, Tom Hush, your No Coast host with the most, and I am joined, as always, by my beautiful co-host, Connor Cornelius. Connor, welcome. I'm so glad to see you again. You didn't die this week. I know, and that's it's been a little bit of a—I've been hard-pressed to do that lately. Yeah, I actually had some money on it, and I'm a little disappointed that I'm going to lose out on that. I've got uh, a hot that. tip next week. I think you might yeah. want to drop a little bit extra in there. <laughs> I am Just saying. I'm going swimming with the sharks. <laughs> We're going to be doing that. Odds uh, have never been better. Odds have never been better of Connor's death. Untimely demise. Untimely. We'll be sad about it. Dress it up a little bit. We'll dress it up a bit. We've got a great episode for you today. Uh, first, we talked to, uh, in our in our feature presentation segment, we talked to the, the fantastically intelligent the and te- the technical director for the music box yes julian antos he is the technical director for the music box and he is also the programmer for the 70 millimeter film festival a fantastic event that's going on at the music box from june 30th to july 15th they've got so many great films in 70 millimeter that they're going to be projecting 2001 a space odyssey hook top gun Spartacus, Spartacus, West Side Story, Kong Skull Island, and Interstellar. So why don't you pick up a ticket for about 12 13 bucks and let Sparta kiss you on the cheek. Whoa. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, if that's not going to convince them, I don't know what will. Uh, but we're, <laughs> we talked to Julian Antos about a little bit about 70mm film and also about... The music box itself, why film is so important, and why it's so tough to get people into theaters nowadays. Uh, Then in our fantastic after credits segment, uh, we talk 20 years of Con Air, the Nicolas Cage film uh, co-starring John Cusack. And let me just tell you right now, uh, we're entering the cage, but one of us might not leave. Spoiler alert. We enter the cage with a very special guest. And you'll just have to stick around and find out who that is. And that's for 20 years of Con Air. But for right now, it's coming attractions time. Connor, you've got some stories for us. We're going to be talking a little bit about what's going on in the world of film. What's what's happening? What's going on? So uh, we got a little bit of a sequel here, a continuation of a story that we've kind of been following. The meteoric rise of DC's perhaps greatest film that they've put out since The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a little bit of a normative opinion, but I think that a lot of people would agree with it. Wonder Woman has continued to be a box office force both domestically in the United States and abroad, which if you follow any... Uh, if you follow the success of films abroad, it's a little bit of a give and take there. So Wonder Woman shattered expectations, and this comes to us from Variety, uh, earning $103 million in North America during its opening week, but now it has earned up to $601.6 million. And that's worldwide. Yeah, and that is worldwide. Wow. That, so, is, that is massive. That com- is massive. Compared with its peers like Pirates of the Caribbean or the new Transformers movie, uh, <laughs> they're all, which a lot of those films are really depending on like success in Chinese markets and other international markets. Mm-hmm. Wonder Woman has continued to be both a critical and a box office success at home and abroad. Right. It is one of the few films of note recently that has had 
uh, a pretty much even distribution between the take here in uh, the United States and also in the international markets. It's splitting about even. So th- roughly 300 million here, 300 million abroad, which is so weird nowadays because, as you mentioned, Pirates of the Caribbean, that's getting by just on international dollars. Uh, same goes for Transformers, if that even does well. Um Right now, the opening is not looking so great. Mm. That opened on uh, Wednesday, I believe. Um, and it's not looking so good. It's the lowest for the franchise. Facing They're... panning by critics. Yeah, naturally. It was given a zero-star <laughs> review in Rolling Stone. Rough. Which, I, you know, I'm not a person that reads a lot of Rolling Stone, but good for them for taking a stand on something for once. No. Um, <laughs> that's, I'm sorry, that's an episode of Hot Takes. That's another hot take. It's another hot take. But, uh, yeah, Wonder Woman proving to be a great success is the third highest-grossing film of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that behind? It's behind Beauty and the Beast from Disney and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 from Marvel and, by proxy, Disney. Yeah. Exa- so the top two, Disney killing it. But uh, good Keep, job, shout DC. Out Disney. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Disney. Disney, come, come on, on the show. show. Just come on the show. Yeah, Just talk about it. <laughs> but uh, good job to director Patty Jenkins for t- turning out a great film that hopefully gives DC a fighting chance in uh, the cinematic realm. Because I don't want to see them fail. I don't want to. Yeah, I didn't want Batman versus Superman to be bad. No, you it want just these, was. You want these movies to be good and not just slogs to experience. Exactly, exactly. Connor, what's next on the docket? So bringing that back to Chicago, the jewel of the Midwest, Chicagoans recently found a rare 35-millimeter print of the film Suspiria, which was made in the mid-'70s, uh, and it's coming to the big screen. And now, if you're unfamiliar with Suspiria, it's a cult horror classic uh, that was directed by Dario Argento, and uh, it was an Italian filmmaker. Uh, and this this film that they found is an uncut Italian print of the '77 original. They found it in a warehouse, and it has been it's very few signs of wear from the people who have inspected it. Uh, it's just an emblematic example of an old school 35 millimeter print. Right, and people are going to be getting the opportunity to view that. That's incredible, and I know this is. It's already getting so many requests to be projected all around, not just in the United States, all around the world. People have found out that here in Chicago we have this rare print and they are begging for it to come to their theater. And really, I mean, really there are very few theaters that could probably do it. Not a lot of big theaters have their, uh, their film projectors anymore at this point. And it's worth noting that this uh, this is a landmark film for the giallo genre. Now, giallo film is the specifically Italian take on thrillers and ho- thriller horrors. You know, a lot of slasher stuff, very pulpy, very violent. And Dario Argento is a massive figure in that in that world. Uh, Suspiria is also getting a remake soon. So it's interesting that it should be found at this point. Uh, the remake is being done. Uh, it's set to be released this year. And um, actually, it's going to star Chloe Grace Moritz, Tilda Swinton, Dakota Johnson in this kind of kitschy film. It's kind of interesting that it should be found at this point. And 
uh, as as you will eventually find out, the a lot of these bigger stu- uh, bigger movie theaters that have sort of outsourced their projection uh, materials to be digital only mm-hmm. are going to be missing out, and you're going to be able to see Suspiria at a little bit more of your local kind of a theater. Uh, the technical director of the Music Box, who we interview in our B segment, uh, there is a to to be determined date where Suspiria this cut will actually be filmed there. Right. Right, it will it will get it will get its day in the sun, uh, or, at or least, in the dimly yeah. lit. <laughs> the dimly Don't lit. put it in the sun, for the love of God. Yeah, please keep it safe. Keep it safe. But that's incredible. So a little bit of history, film history, added to Chicago yet again, yet again. Uh, what else is what else is happening here? We got uh, any more stories? Oh, so something I wanted to bring up is the Han Solo. Solo film. The Han Solo solo film. Solo dolo, solo solo. Uh, what happened with this, I don't, I'm sure you guys have been following it a little bit, but originally the film was being directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are super well-known. Um, they did the 21 and 22 Jump Street films. They did the Lego movie, very famous for that, and they've done a lot of stuff over the last few years, both in film and television, uh, they had a show called The Last Man on Earth, which is still going. They helped create that. But they have been summarily fired from the Han Solo movie, both of them, over creative differences, uh, essentially. That old foil. Yeah. The old uh, saying is, oh, just creative differences. It wasn't working. Now, this movie is about, what, six months into production already. Odds are most of the major set pieces have been shot. Um, But they're still struggling now to uh, get it done so much that they have hired Ron Howard. Of Arrested Development and Drive fame. (laughs) (laughs) And we cannot forget... American Graffiti, and I believe Happy Days. He was on Happy Days. Yep, yep. But, I mean, let's not be cruel. He is he is a very well-known direct, director, a very competent director. He's being brought on to finish the film. But I have some serious issue with uh, Kathleen Kennedy, who is the head of Lucasfilm, and Lawrence Kasdan, who is a legend in film himself, has been tied with the Star Wars franchise since Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, which films he wrote? He wrote Empire, and I believe he wrote Return of the Jedi. Okay. So he is he's a massive figure in Star Wars you know, franchise history. But I have a huge problem with this idea that only Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence Kasdan know what's right for Star Wars. Yeah, as if they have the only rights to be able to, like, tell a story within that universe. Exactly. And this was the same problem that was had back in 1997, 98, when they started making Star Wars Episode One. Now, I know we don't, I don't want to talk too much Hollywood, but this is something that I think is affecting every film viewer. Um, There are very few people that watch movies that refuse to watch Star Wars. And you know what? Most people are going to go see these movies. So I want to comment on this because, honestly, screw you, Lawrence Kasdan. Like, who do you think you are? Seriously. You, you, You hire Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are extremely capable directors extremely well known at this point by the if if you don't know them by name you know them by their work and um they 
legitimately just know what they're doing. They have a great track record of making good films, and you fired them because they weren't making the Star Wars movie you wanted them to make. I think that's incredibly unfair. Yeah, and it's just disrespectful because these people, these are filmmakers in their own right that have uh, uh, challenged what most people think of when they want to go. They're subversive with their filmmaking. Extremely. And it's, you know, that is something that could be injected into the Star Wars franchise. I think that uh, The Force Awakens, I, I enjoyed it as a... Uh, as a uh, cinema-going experience. However, it didn't really take very many risks. Yeah. Uh, Rogue One, I think, was a, g- a good example of taking some more risks. And this Han Solo standalone film, or this anthology, part of an anthology yeah. series, it could have, you know, it could have gone in a in a interesting direction that was going to be helmed under those two people. And now that we have Ron Howard in it, it's it's going to be establishment. Yeah. That's pretty much all. That's all they want. Um. It seems like Hollywood kind of has this obsession now with hiring on kind of hot indie directors. And I mean, I'm probably behind I'm behind the curve on this. This has been happening for a while. Um, Jurassic World did it with Colin Trevorrow. He started out kind of an indie filmmaker and then he made Jurassic World and they made he made the movie that the studio wanted him to make and it made a buttload of money. It was the highest grossing film of that year, I believe. Yeah, classic so, example of a filmmaker with an emergent voice in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. and then totally changes it just at the whims of a studio. Exactly. Um you have you have uh, Ryan Johnson, who's going to be doing Star Wars Episode Eight. Who knows where that's going to go? And then number nine, Colin Trevorrow again. Um, and there have been some situations where it has totally backfired and pr- virtually ended uh, a, a starting out a guy starting out a very young career. Um, the Fantastic Four reboot that came out a few years ago. At this point, which um, one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it was the reboot starring uh, Michael B. Jordan. Um, and really, William he Teller? was yeah, Miles Teller, Miles, Miles Teller. Teller, William Tell, William. Oh my Tell. God, that is, and his overture that was wrong. <laughs> but uh, there was that, and it was directed by Josh Trank, who was kind of an up and coming director. And that movie bombed because of studio interference. He even took to Twitter and later removed the tweet, basically saying, "I'm not at fault for this. This is 20th Century Fox stepping in and telling us what to do." Uh, if we want to go back a ways to Alien 3, directed by David Fincher, who is easily one of the best living filmmakers out there right now, at least in the States, and um, that movie totally tanked. Like, it did not do well critically or financially. It uh, it could have ended his career right there, but luckily he was able to be like, hey, I made one, one bad movie isn't going to kill my career. But it's just uh, this is going to keep happening if we allow corporate forces. And I don't want to sound like, you know, too much of a hippie. (laughs) But it's true. This is what happens. Corporate forces come in and they... Interfering with art. They interfere with art. It takes a lot of training and a lot of skill and a lot of work to become a director. It doesn't take a lot of training or a lot of skill... Maybe some, you know, the ability to convince people of things, but it doesn't take a lot of hard work to become a Hollywood exec, honestly. And I'm willing to say that on the mic. I I think that you don't need to know a lot about movies to legitimately work in the movie business from that standpoint. You simply have to make it seem like you know what you're talking about. It's a consistent, consistent issue of people failing upwards. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And everybody knows that the process of filmmaking is uh, there are it's inundated with 
with bad compromises. Yeah. Right? So somebody wants to wear a mustache on set, and then the people at Fox say, no, we don't want a mustache. And then the people, I shouldn't say Fox, the people, you know, the shadowy people behind say, no, maybe we just go no mustache. And then the guy goes, yeah, well, I'm going to have a mustache. And so, okay, fine, just shave it up a little bit. That's a compromise. And that is exactly the kind of thing that you see with execs trying to uh, take what somebody has as a vision for a character or a mm-hmm. property and trying to bastardize it in some sort of way. All right, enough of this Star Wars talk. We've talked too much Hollywood already. I just kind of had to have, I felt like we need. I needed to have an airing of grievances. I was pretty upset about this because I guess I'm just a fan of Phil Lord and Chris Miller. But more importantly, we're, we're going to talk Chicago film. We got to talk Chicago film, and that's coming up next with our our talk with Julian Antos. He is the technical director of the Music Box, and he is also the programmer of the 70 Millimeter Film Fest, a fantastic festival showcasing one of the most beautiful formats in film, 70 millimeter. Big images, big sound. If you've never heard of 70 millimeter or you just want to learn a little bit more about it and what Julian does, stick around. He's coming up next here on No Coast Cinema on WGM+. Stick around, guys. everybody you are listening to no coast cinema here on wgm plus we are your guide to chicago cinema and cinema around the world i'm your host tom hush and back again from the first segment and for every segment is my co-host connor cornelius connor welcome back again gracias por la introducción tom oh perdón uh put the english thank you tom for that oh. introduction and uh i just i i speak spanish so well that sometimes it just it just, it happens, just bleeds you know. out yeah is it true that when you get really fluent in a in a language you just dream in it yes it is true although oh. not for me <laughs> it's not for <laughs> the me the dream is dead know. the dream is dead uh dreaming in other languages aside we have a fantastic guest today um he is from the music box if you have never been to the Music Box and you live in Chicago, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, it's one of the most historic theaters in the city. It is one of the most loved theaters in the city. It has uh, diverse programming from classics to current indies to stuff like uh, the films of Edgar Wright. They recently did a great, great series on the films of Edgar Wright, all on 35mm film. But, yes, the Music Box is a place for fans of cinema and movies and what have you to congregate and watch and enjoy in a beautiful theater that was built in uh, or at least opened in 1929 I believe and uh, today we are joined by Julian Antos he is the technical director of the music box and he is also the programmer of their festival the 70 millimeter festival now the 70 millimeter film festival is a uh, is an event that runs from June 30th to July 15th this year and what they do is showcase a bunch of different films that were all uh printed printed uh put to Julian maybe you could uh say it a little bit better than I can yeah, some somehow they've all ended up on 70 millimeter film they were shot in all all sorts of various methods um and this this festival really runs the full spectrum of production methods but 
the point is they all they all made it to 70 somehow yeah. or another. They all made it to that beautiful, beautiful <laughs> film format known as 70 millimeter film. And uh, we're looking at films like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Sleeping Beauty, Top Gun, Spartacus, Kong Skull Island, Something as Recent as That, all being projected on 70 millimeter film. So welcome to No Coast Cinema. Julian, how are you doing today? Thank you very much. I'm doing well. So as the... Uh, as the programmer of this fest, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of the film festival itself. Yeah, so this is something the Music Box Theater has been doing for about five years now, and we do it basically every year and a half. We call it yearly, but we kind of <laughs> space it out because it's a lot of work. Um, and we started doing it on a regular basis when um, The Master came out, and that renewed a lot of interest in 70 millimeter film projection. And there were a lot of people who had never seen it before, uh, myself included, who attended that screening of The Master and were just blown away by what the format could do. Um, you know, I grew up seeing movies on 35 all the time, and it's great and wonderful, and around. Around that time, uh, film was becoming a more rarefied thing and slipping out of the multiplexes and being replaced with digital. Um, so that 70 screening of The Master you know, came at a time when it felt just really important and relevant, and we, we sort of latched onto that and have been running with it ever since. And we've seen a kind of a decent resurgence in that fanfare. I know Quentin Tarantino did a, like a national tour with his new movie, uh, uh, the Hateful Eight, right? Yeah, they made out. they made about a hundred prints of that in seventy millimeter, which was kind of ridiculous. It's kind of kind of <laughs> too many prints, right? Um, but uh, yeah, that's that that was a pretty big deal, pretty big undertaking. So, with some recent movies coming out in the format, how has the public reacted to the um, to the more recent installments of the seventy millimeter fest? I th- I think it's been really overwhelmingly positive, and it's really interesting to see after. You know, decades of of film projection just being like a normal thing that people didn't even think about. Um, now it's with this festival, it's at the forefront, and it's you know the festival is designed ar- around the movies we show, of course, but it's really a, a film festival about a specific format, and it's very sort of geeky and <laughs> you, and yet you know pe- be, people who have never thought about it before are very interested in it it, and, do, it yeah. does play to a certain audience that wants to see 70 millimeter film yeah. and knows what it is with 70 millimeter film now before the hateful eight i i will confess i did not know about this format and when they were just like oh it's going to be projected yeah. in 70 millimeter it's so it worked <laughs> yeah exactly uh and they were talking about it like it was this glorious thing and i had just zero idea what 70 millimeter film is julian can you what is 70 millimeter film versus other types versus digital projection well it's you know it's it's film only it's bigger uh so we have <laughs> at, at the very very bottom end we have super 8 which is what people shot a lot of home movies on for a very long time super 8 and regular 8 millimeter and then there's 16 millimeter which is maybe if you were a little more wealthy you'd shoot your home movies on that and that's how a lot of libraries and prisons and churches exhibited (laughs) feature films uh they'd rent it from a library or something like that and 35 was what was what was in all the movie theaters across the country and across the world for over 100 years. Uh, And then there's 70, which is the biggest of them all, and it's twice as wide and 1.25 times as tall as 35-millimeter film. 
physically. Um, and the, the image is... The images can be as big or small as you want it, but the point is there's more detail mm-hmm. uh, in that enormous frame. And 70 was limited to, like, major cities and major markets, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Detroit at the time. Um, and there would be maybe a 100 engagements in 70 millimeter uh, of a big title in the 60s or so. So, uh, so why... Why use 70 millimeter? When shooting uh, these films, what was the draw of using this film format versus just 35 millimeter? Well, at the time 70 came out, it was competing with television. Um, So theater exhibitors uh, and production companies were trying to get people out of their house to see movies in public, which is sort of the the same problem we're battling today (laughs) with Netflix and whatever. Um, so that that was a, probably the primary draw for really making things bigger and stereo sound and providing a you know an overwhelming experience that you know felt like going out to the opera or something like that. So in comparison to that 35 millimeter standard, uh, 70 millimeter has been said to be up to four times the resolution of that uh, normal format. So clearly. Uh, especially uh, Tom mentioned that 2001 A Space Odyssey is mm-hmm. going to be showing there, and that's obviously a buffet for the eyes. Yeah. So the <laughs> public is clearly going to be benefiting from that, but for as somebody that is an operator behind the scenes having to actually heft this stuff around, what kind of a physical like demand, I guess, is is it behind the behind? It's, it's kind of comical that the prints are on... Uh, Twenty-minute reels, and each reel weighs about thirty or forty pounds. Oh my god! Um, and <laughs> you're you're switching between two projectors every twenty minutes, and doing changeovers, and so you have to lift it up and thread it, and make sure the focus is good, and framing is good, and sound is good. And so this is a physical task. This yeah. is like you are getting down and dirty to project these yep. films. <laughs> Drop your gym membership, people. Yeah. Just get paid ten bucks <laughs> an hour at the local your local theater, hefting <laughs> these things up. Exactly, exactly. So with uh, seven, the 70 millimeter Film Festival, not only are you the technical director, you are also the programmer mm-hmm. for this festival. So why this set of films? Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey seems like kind of a foregone conclusion. It is that visual buffet that Connor was talking about. But we're looking at uh, Top Gun. Top in Gun, 70 that's, millimeters. A, that's a rare, a rare print, actually. Yeah, where would one, what is, uh, how did you choose some of these movies? Uh, so it's, we're, what we're dealing with is a kind of limited slate, actually, because there are not a whole lot of movies that are actually shot in 70 millimeter, um, you know, under, under 75, uh, I would say. Uh, that number might be wrong, but whatever. <laughs> Uh, about 75 or so. Okay. Um, and of those, uh, not all of them survive in good showable 70 millimeter prints. Uh, so that limits it a bit further. Um, so when we're talking shot and printed on 70 millimeter, maybe we have a couple dozen titles to choose from. And we always run 2001. We almost always run Lawrence of Arabia. That's taking a break this year, but it'll come back. Um and then we have some more more obscure titles. Um, and then there's prints that are blow-ups, uh, films that were shot on 35mm and were blown up to 70. Uh, that was really common in the 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have Top Gun. Um, and that was, that was done... Um, the, the image on those looks very good, um, but the primary 
purpose of the blowups is to get really good sound uh, from the magnetic soundtrack, uh, which I think still, if the track is in good condition, uh, represents pretty much the best sound quality you can have really? anywhere. So that jump from yeah. 35 millimeter to 70 will. How, does it expand the kind of range of sound or just give yeah, it more so, dynamic range? So 35 millimeter at the time in the 80s uh, was usually achieved through optical sound, uh, which is if you've seen Fantasia, they'll they'll show you the, the string on the harp being plucked and looking at an optical soundtrack that's it's basically a visual representation of sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very ingenious and it sounds really good. Um, but there's a sort of limited dynamic range and a little bit of compression. Um, so when they developed magnetic sound, uh, the dynamic range is almost limitless. It's, it represents the whole spectrum of human hearing, um, and there's six discrete channels of sound. Wow. Uh, we ran a reel from the Top Gun print, and the walls were shaking. It's great. <laughs> You can hear uh, I'll Always Be Your Wingman just in the most clear, (laughs) beautiful sound. I want to see – I want to hear so many of those lines from Top Gun. I got the need. It it makes it a good movie. Yeah. (laughs) Because I've heard Tom Tom Cruise does speak in the full range of human hearing. Yeah. It's just we're unfortunate enough not to get it. But now, for (laughs) the first time, you can get it in 70-millimeter film. Um, So – with uh, you, t- you talked a little bit about how seventy millimeter was an attempt to get you know people back into the theaters by offering something that television and um, home media eventually, when you get into the VHS era, uh, just couldn't deliver. Now we have four K TVs, mm-hmm. you know, eleven dot one surround sound systems. What, in your opinion, is going to get people back into the theaters? What, where's the where's the problem with getting people to experience um, film in its uh, arguably its intended format? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, when we do these screenings, we sort of try and educate our audience on what what they're actually seeing. Um, you know, you're saying, you know, this is this is an old vintage print. It's a one of a kind art object, basically, um, and. It's it is kind of hard to push because uh, it's it's very easy to say you know digital 4K whatever maximum resolution, mm-hmm. um, but what you're looking at when you're seeing a film print projected uh, is something that's photochemical that's difficult to measure. Um, there's a color spectrum which is I think totally different from what we see in digital. Um, is a different way of seeing light um but that's a little that's a little difficult to market you know you can't mm-hmm. you're trying to describe all these subtle qualities um when the multiplex down the street is pushing like sony 4k 3d whatever um but you know the easiest thing to say is just this is really beautiful and one of a kind uh which is totally true i do um, want to get uh your opinion i want to get some opinions from around the room here um so we were all old enough to remember seeing films still shown on film. Mm-hmm. Um, can I want to get, it's a kind of an abstract thing I'm going for here. It's kind of weird, but like describe to me, if you guys can, your earliest memories going to the movies and seeing something projected. Julian, if you want to go first. Uh, that's, I think it, I think it might've been, Muppets in Outer Space. Oh my gosh! At the Davis Theater. The <laughs> either that, in Outer Space. either that, or 
the live action hundred and one Dalmatians at uh it would have been when Water Tower Place still had a theater in yeah. the basement. Uh and I remember yeah, I think that's that's the earliest I can remember remember I saw like a speck of dust and I asked my aunt took me and I said, What is what is that? She said, It's a speck of dust on the film. I said, <laughs> On the film. What, what do you amazing. mean? Amazing. <laughs> like you see the I'm not exactly sure what it's called. I think it's it's been explained to me in changeover cue. Yeah, what is yeah. the the little bubble maybe in the corner yep. of the screen? I remember seeing that. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever been in a theater when there was like a mishap or was it was that I've, speck of I've, dust? I've been responsible for many mishaps. Oh really? <laughs> um, how long how long have you been projecting? Uh maybe 7 or 8 years or so. I sort of grew up around movie theaters a little bit. My parents uh, uh had friends who worked at movie theaters and it was just sort of part of my life growing up. How does one learn to become a projectionist? Other than the obvious, you start working at a movie theater. Yeah, you got a you got a tongue on the arm of of a projectionist and find one somewhere and be persistent, and then they'll teach you. It's like an apprenticeship, almost. Yeah, because there there is an art to it. You have to do things at the right time and make sure that it, you know, that it uh, lines up and it's as you said in focus and it's in the right place. I know. Fairly recently, because I I wish I could go to more music box films like you know thirty five millimeter screenings, but uh, fairly recently I went to see Akira, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. The print that you guys had was beautiful, and despite its age, like I mean there was some damage to the film. That's just you know a given, but it looked beautiful, and uh, I was I enjoyed it so much. And then I I kind of hoped it would happen. From this sort of macabre point of view, I was like, oh, I've seen it happen in movies, but I've never <laughs> seen a film reel like Splicer have to be fixed. And like literally 10 minutes from the finale, just <laughs> and like the lights came on and everything. And um, how how do you even fix that? Like, what does it feel like when you when that happens? Oh, it's terrible, especially, <laughs> especially if there's a lot of people in the right. audience. Uh, I mean, all, all sorts of things can go wrong. But the, the nice thing about film is you can usually get get up and running real quick. Um, with digital, if it's a you know software issue or something like that, you could be off screen for a whole day. Um, with film, usually you can you know find the right spare part or stick a rubber band on something and you know just get, get it all get together. through the show. Uh, the the machines we have are very reliable uh, for the most part. They're you know, maybe fifty or sixty years old at this point, but they just they keep on running. You just got to oil them. Mm-hmm. So with the music box, how long have you been there? Uh, I've been working here in this position like two years, but I've I've worked there part time off and on for five or six years. What's it What's it like working there? I mean, we're talking about a historic landmark mm-hmm. in the city of Chicago, not just for you know for uh, its aesthetic qualities from the outside and inside, but as a uh, as a cultural touchstone. What's the What's the feeling you get when you walk into work? Uh, it's It's great. It's still you know. Even even day in day out, it's rewarding. Yeah. I always find, you know, so you know what the best thing is when there's a great screening and mm-hmm. people are walking out of the theater and are saying, "Wow, I can't believe I just saw that," or "I can't believe how great that just was," uh, and you feel like you've made a difference. <laughs> it seems like the music box is always throwing out these kind of oddball, not oddball, but these. Uh, things specific for a specific community like i know mm-hmm. that you've screened the room a lot 
Yeah, uh, we do. <laughs> the, yeah, I've never actually seen that movie, but uh, obviously I've heard that it's hard to avoid that movie's <laughs> reputation. But <laughs> you, have, you have a hot take on The Room? Are you no, I, oh, yeah. I, would, I shouldn't say anything. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's a wonderful movie that people are able to find joy in. So, that's <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask, is The Music Box a film-only venue, or do you do no, digital projection No, we do, we do digital projection. Um I mean, most of the new movies we show are on DCP, uh, which is the uh, industry industry standard um, for digital projection. Um, but we run we run film in both theaters, both our little one and our big one, um, and digital. Uh, so you kind of have to, uh, unless you're Quentin Tarantino and can you know run the new Beverly and do only film, you kind of have to do digital. Um, but we try and run as much film as we can. What is your opinion on Quentin Tarantino? Like, well, Quentin Tarantino has been very outspoken. He's gone so far to say that he will quit directing when it's no longer possible to project his films or any films on film. <laughs> so what is, your, what is your opinion on digital projection? And uh, do you think that, that it is necessarily the future of projection? Or um, I mean, I think, I think the two technologies need to be uh, to exist side by side. Um, if I had my way, it would be only film all the time. Okay, uh, that's that's what I love. Uh, and digital is is good for some stuff, um, but it's kind of this homogenized, boring idea of of what the movies can be. Uh, and you know, a lot a lot of the best screenings I've seen are on film, and I think there's just so much potential there, and it's so beautiful. Um, but there's a lot of money to be made in digital. Uh, some companies have gotten very rich converting theaters. Um, so, so it's, it's just what it keep is. Happening. This is yeah. you know the the movies are a, a product of capitalism, and we kind of so need to deal with that. Got to um, work within the system yeah. at some point. And uh, you know, with the where was I going? We'll cut this out. We'll cut out the stumbling. <laughs> um, so it it reminds me a lot of the idea of what's happening in the music industry as well with mm-hmm. vinyl versus digital. I mean, on one hand, you've got literally every song you could ever listen to ever available in a tiny little rectangle in your pocket versus uh, having a library that you have to pay for each single you know item and it takes time and care and all these things and yet it's back to being you know almost a billion dollar business just the the vinyl itself so i really liked what you had what you said about where digital and film just need to kind of coexist mm-hmm. you have theaters like the music box that are and the new beverly in la and a, a bunch of other theaters around there are still going to show film screenings for the people who care about the effort that people like yourself put in and that the directors and you know directors of uh photography put in all those years ago and still do um in the case of some of these films but uh do you feel that there is greater interest now in in these film screenings uh versus maybe i don't know five to ten years ago when digital was really the wave of the future yeah absolutely i think there's there's a little bit of pushback uh, and um you know the the conversation just keeps going and you know five five years ago i think like if we did a edgar wright series at the music box and 
Nothing. <laughs> yeah, pro- there would have been some some amount of interest, um, but uh, this time around, you know, we saw a screening of Shaun of the Dead with 150 people on a Tuesday night or whatever, and it's it great. Um, so I think I think people are people, and it's it's a general pushback. I think people want to get away from their phones a little bit and get out of the house and you know feel like they're not tied to technology and return to the real world you know get back to the real world and the music box is obviously dedicated to bringing that kind of an experience to the people that are interested Mm -hmm. what are you you mentioned that maybe you uh go out and you before the showing you maybe do a little bit of a seminar maybe explain a little bit about the history of the reels and where they're coming from for the for the 70 fest specifically definitely so was that taking place at the beginning of every uh, screening? Because that, that sounds like something that I would really enjoy. Yeah, almost, almost every screening at the 70 Fest, either I or someone else will, will introduce and give a little background on where, where the print's coming from and you know why it looks the way it does. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, it sounds like you guys are doing a... It's a, it's a great thing for the curating the experience. Yeah, it's a service. You. It's a service. <laughs> uh, we've been talking to Julian Antos. He is the technical director and te- is yeah technical director yeah technical all director. right Ju- yeah i, I was director of director of technics te- <laughs> <laughs> the turntable the turntable <laughs> oh how the turntables are uh we are talking to julian antos technical director of the music box theater um here in chicago and he is also the programmer for the uh, 70 millimeter film festival that festival is ha- happening from uh, june 30th to july 15th and you can get your tickets right now you can get them over at uh, musicboxtheater.com or can they go to the box office and get the oh, tickets yeah. ahead of time as well yeah it's the old-fashioned right. way that's fine exactly go get it the old-fashioned way maybe stop in the box office just uh, some of the films are going to be showing 2001 a space odyssey spartacus west side story and even recent films such as kong skull island and interstellar they've got um some of the prices 70 millimeter festival pass you can get for 75 dollars uh if you're a music box member get it for 60 um you just got to get out there and see it see some of these beautiful films on the grandest format known to man 70 millimeter film thank you so much julian for coming on no coast cinema we really appreciate it yeah anytime All right. We will be back in just a little bit here on No Coast Cinema. We are on WGM Plus, and we are also your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. Back in just a bit. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I am your host, Tom Hush, back again. And, of course, we welcome back from the break Connor Cornelius. Con Air Cornelius. Con Air Cornelius. That joke will make sense in about five minutes. But (laughs) I'm glad you made it through the break, Connor. Could I I talk? Just come here for a second. Just can we just talk about this for? Okay. Um, so, what's wrong, Tom? I, I don't know. Just something you said earlier is the 
you went and saw Akira uh, at a theater without me? Yeah, I mean, I I thought you wouldn't. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Oh, I, I think you knew. I think oh, you know what it was right. a big deal. Fine. If you're going to be this way, it's just, you know, I'm not going to go of, to you. I know that we're not, like, cool or anything, but, like, there's... I know I hate you, but I guess I need to invite you to more films. Just something. Just... We'll do the next one. All right, that's... we'll do the next one. I know there's a bunch of Ghibli movies playing soon, so I'll take you to my neighbor Totoro, and then we'll call it even. All right, how's that sound? Yeah, just... Noco Cinema here on WGM Plus. Um, we're in our after credit sequence here, and for this, we are going to do a segment that we haven't done since the first episode, and. In in honor of that, I wanted to bring back our guest from the first episode. He is the creator, the mastermind behind Capper Movie House, and is also he is also a writer and director in his own right. Please welcome back to the program, Mr. Jake Wiseman. Welcome hey back, guys. Jake. How's it going? Thanks for coming on to the show, Jake. Well, I I got tickets to see Aquila and the Bee last night. I <laughs> called you, and you didn't pick up. Yeah, I. So uh, I don't really understand. I gave I, you a deliberately an incorrect number. Well, now that I so heard who hates conversation who? with Tom, I think I understand what's going on. I think yeah, it's not Akira. And the All bee. right, well, it's me. So, it's a me problem. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of hate in this room, and it's time. Oh to, no, I love both of you. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, so like I said, after credit sequence, we're going to do something that we haven't done since the first episode, and I'm so excited that we're doing it again. We are going to enter the cage. How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? I don't know. Hey, have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beat until you? Yeah, we. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> the official. <laughs> Somebody try to kill me, man! Oh my God! Wow. That is the official theme song of Enter the Cage. That's what I was hoping that theme song was, oh. and it more than met expectations. I'm really that glad it so did. Funny. I'm, I'm really glad it did. So we are now inside the cage, and we are going to be talking about something that is near and dear to all of us. That's uh, true. This year, 2017, marks the 20th anniversary. Of one of the greatest films ever made. Bar none. Bar none. Con Air, mm. starring, of course, Nicolas Cage, but also starring John Malkovich. Yeah. Steve Buscemi. Yes. Ving Rames. Ving Rames yes. in a in a commanding Dave role. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. John Cusack. Yes. Cole so, Meany. Cole Meany. For all you Trek heads out there. Basically a who's who of the nineteen nineties. It's a who's who of it's a who's film, who. yeah, cinema, right? I mean, everyone just... is still relatively relevant now, right? In Abs- their own yeah, way. absolutely. It's a great cast. The film was released. MC Ganey. yeah, MC Ganey. <laughs> the film was released on June 6, nineteen ninety-seven. It's directed by Simon West, uh, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah, it was in a coke-fueled rampage. <laughs> uh, decided that he was going to make. He was going to make Con Air. Uh, the budget seventy-five million dollars. The oh. gross domestic. Box office two hundred twenty four million dollars. Could you imagine being able to spend seventy five million dollars on that kind of a movie now? I no. I don't, That's the sad I part. For like an an original 
kick-ass action movie. Yeah. Filled with right. your favorite action stars and filled with your favorite non-action stars, right. like John Cusack, um, who would later on push Tin, I believe. Yes. But that wasn't before Con Air. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think was he was he in Gross Point Plank? Gross yeah, but is, point, that, an ac- point is that an action film? For that matter, is Pushing Tin really an action film? I don't know. Does he do action films? The Raven is that an action film? That you know what that might have to be for another uh, segment. Enter the sack. <laughs> well, no, because we can do what is that movie? Frozen Ground with Nicolas Cage and John Cusack. Yep, is that was more recent, film? right? It was terrible. Yeah, That's true. It was. it was you know whatever. Anyway, Con Air. Anyway, Con, Con Air. Air Cornelius. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so 20 years of Con Air, and um, it's got this really great legacy, I think, of being just uh, an action movie. It's, so, it's not even that ridiculous in concept, but it's ri- a little ridiculous in concept. Absolutely it, ridiculous in execution. Absolutely ridiculous in execution. And uh, had its time in the sun as like one of those movies you would catch on TV all the time. It was it was at, I would say it was at Shawshank Redemption level that most people first saw Con Air at least uh, at least at my age on TV. Uh, actually, I want to ask you Jake, when was the first time you saw Con Air? I was too young for it in the theater. I was 10 years old when it came out in the theater. Mm-hmm. And so I'm pretty sure uh, I saw it my brother's DVD collection. And it may or may not have been my first John Malkovich movie, which is a big thing mm-hmm. i'm right. trying to figure that out right now if i had seen being john malkovich first and i and i'm pretty sure if that's the case and i would have seen it in the line of fire first as well so that's mm-hmm. like two psycho john malkovich roles followed by cyrus the virus which is maybe the best john malkovich role of all time which he would not want to hear but i mean that's debatable i mean the shit that comes out of that guy's mouth is just incredible and he does it so well exactly um, connor connor when was the first time you saw connor it must have been a couple of years ago, honestly. I uh, was pretty late to the game with that one, Boy, considering say, I had seen Ghost Rider by the time I had seen Con Air at least, I'm going to say a dozen, Baker's dozen. <laughs> Just, my God. <laughs> you, wa- you watch Ghost Listen, Rider that many times? To this day, the only film that uh, my friend and I paid to see in a theater twice. The first really? one? Yeah. I wish I it had been Spirit of Vengeance. I never saw the second one. Yeah, me either. Wow. But he does incorporate a novo shamanic acting style in the uh, in the Spirit of Vengeance. How old were you when the first one came out? I think the first one was 2007, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I would have been, been like 14. Yeah. Perfect age. Exactly. Great age It's the perfect it. age to watch that over and over again. I saw it in the theater. I remember seeing it in the theater and just being like... <laughs> no one can see my it. face, my very confused, scrunched <laughs> face right now. But Con Con Air, what was what were some of your first impressions of seeing this movie? Con Air, yeah, Con Air is perfect from beginning to end. Throughout its flaws, of which there seems to be a handful, it's still perfect. Really, and I and because it it fulfills exactly exactly what it sets out to do i was watching it earlier and i was like this movie is masterful at exposition just 20 minutes of setting everything up and it spirals outward so you can just see why they're setting it all up and it's hilarious and silly and like but it's dark it's dark but also like these characters I, i think the most thing that i got out of this last time i watched it is that like all of the characters 
have one function and they serve that function. Mm-hmm. There isn't much else going on with the characters. I felt the same thing when I was watching. I watched it today, actually. I think that Steve Buscemi's role, it was like all of the best writing in the movie was just like, all right, we'll just have Steve Buscemi sit there very, very properly yeah. and just repeat these yeah. insane. Like He was in Fargo. Exactly. Yeah. He yeah, knows how we, to. What do we want Steve Buscemi to say? What would be great to hear come out of his mouth kind of a thing? <laughs> and like, I, I don't know how John Malkovich got involved with this project. I don't know why I'm going to... I'm just going to keep talking about Cyrus the Virus. Absolutely. I just think he's, the, his lines are easily my favorite lines well, of the entire thing. let's set it up for people who yeah. have not seen Con Air. The basic Those premise poor, of this. poor, bastards. Yeah, I haven't no. seen Con Air yet. I, I mean, I saw it on TV, and I was just like, this is possibly one of the most fun movies I've ever seen. But the basic premise of Con Air is uh, you've got Nick Cage, and he is... Army Ranger, ex-Army Ranger Cameron Poe. The perfect soldier. The perfect soldier. (laughs) The fighting machine. His age is... We're not quite sure about his age. (laughs) No. We have no idea how old he is. He's got long, luscious locks, but uh, his hairline would suggest otherwise. I'm pretty sure this was written for like a 23-year-old, and (laughs) it ended up going to Nicolas Cage, who was late 30s. Yeah. At at, at least. At best. At least. So he is ex-Army Ranger Cameron Poe. He leaves the military. (laughs) On parole? No, 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 he gets, he gets a, it's a, it's, it's a, he's like a, he's just discharged. Yeah. Yeah, He finishes his tour. What's it called? Honorary discharge. Yeah. He gets his honorary discharge. He's done with being a ranger. Yeah. And he goes back home to Alabama to see his wife. His one and only. His one and only. Beautiful wife. To his daughter that he hasn't seen. No. Not even, not yet. We're talking, this is the beginning. Well, it's the beginning, so she's pregnant. Yeah, she's pregnant. Oh, oh, you're right. Come on, Connor. I'm sorry. Get with your name after this film. You're right. That's so true. <laughs> so he goes back home to Alabama to see his beautiful wife. He's he's trim. He's got a great hairline. He's, he's looking a, good. He's like, looking fine. Like he finally got out of the army and just really got his shit together like he was supposed to. Yes. Yeah. And so he goes back and his wife is a waitress in a bar. Uh, there's typically some uh, drunk men who want to hit on his wife. Yeah. And he's like, no, please go away. I'm not about it. And she's like, no, please go away. I'm not about it. But naturally, these guys are super aggressive, and they eventually try to pounce on uh, Nick Cage and start just beating the crap out of him. Well, I mean, and, it's a little it's a little stretched out. Yeah, I mean, there. it's it's the close but, it's the closing right. time of the bar. He goes, and he ends up getting in a fight with these dudes. He kills one of them. In self-defense, I might And he needs to. Yeah, he, he cracks that skull. Yeah, he, he just murders. Oh. Well, it's not even murder. They well, give the him manslaughter. the guy pulled a knife on him, too. Yeah, exactly. But he gets charged with manslaughter. And I think one of the gr- greatest lines of this movie is the judge telling Cameron Poe that because he is an army ranger, yep. the law like laws do not apply to him the same way, which is one insane but also to the perfect setup for this plot and showing how crazy good uh nick cage is as as his character as an army ranger he is the deadliest weapon he is so deadly that laws do not apply to him in a normal sense yeah the judges are scared of him rapists are scared of him everyone is scared of him yeah Nick Cage. I mean, you look at that physique. If the guy touched you, he'd break your arm. But Cameron Poe is an arrow through the wind. He is. <laughs> <laughs> like, through this entire movie. Exactly. He, is, he knows what he's about. Yep. And mm-hmm. he just... He, he never second-guesses himself. <laughs> yeah. There's so, a- well, he could get off. He does second-guess himself for a second because he's about to get off the plane. And then he's like, you know what? 
I can't leave all you guys here. Yeah, yeah I can't He's leave a, a man behind, John Cusack. You remember that. So from <laughs> from getting true. arrested, he... Do yourself a favor remember that. <laughs> from getting arrested, he is in prison for a long time. He goes years without seeing his wife, and his daughter is born. Yeah, while he's in prison, up. yeah, and gets and gets to a decent age. He's like four years old. They exchange letters. Yeah, they exchange letters. It's write. actually really a really touching sequence of for an opening exchange. credit sequence. Yeah, for an pretty. opening credit sequence, you're hearing him talk to his daughter through letters, and he uh, he befriends another prisoner. Can I just interrupt and say that this is supposed to be a light overview, and we've been <laughs> talking about the first five. Dude, I'm sorry for because like it's such five a, or ten minutes. It's, it's a really great funny. setup. No, it's perfect. It's a, That's it's what a I was saying setup. before. It's if, like it's a masterful exposition. If you don't do ju- the Con Air mythos justice, I mean, then what are we doing here? Yeah, we're setting up the Touché. Connect, the the Con Air the cinematic universe, the Airborne Pantheon. For God's sake, <laughs> exactly. So Word. long story. Story short, he's getting he's going back home. He's paroled, and he get, has to go on this plane to get transferred uh, to where he hitches a ride on this, uh, you know, this plane that's transferring prisoners to another pr- prison. This is okay. Can okay, I? Please, okay, please. By so all means, this is something I was trying to clear up today. What I found out is that there's this other thing that should be a plot point and never is a plot point. I never really picked up on this. Is that they are building. They've built this maximum security prison. That's where they're going. Is mm-hmm. like a brand new, shiny maximum security prison. And so they're shoving the worst of the worst, who are all going to go to this new like Alcatraz, I guess, mm-hmm. in what Louisiana or something like that. Maybe. Yeah. So I don't know. There, like I must. It must be on the way to Alabama because otherwise, why would Cameron well, Poe even be in, on that plane? Is he in? Mobile. Is that where he goes to jail? No, he's going. He's where going is, from San. Jail? This is a really weird thing, and I might need to be corrected on this. But he is in. At one point, there's a line of dialogue that at, one of the prisoners asks, um, asks Cameron Poe. He asks Nick Cage, "Oh, where you were in the queue, right? The queue is San Quentin, right? Oh. Isn't it? That's what I thought. Because why would he get arrested for manslaughter in Alabama and then not?" go to prison in well, Alabama because the I law mean, like, doesn't apply to him Tom you've already been well, over this so maybe that's how they but to it. be fair you don't necessarily if you live in Chicago it doesn't mean you go to Cook County like that's really if you truly, commit the crime in the doesn't matter like really yeah they'll send you wherever so I think they you send can go him to, all over the country I'm pretty sure they send him to San Quentin that's hilarious is there I haven't googled this because is there like a map of the Con Air if not, there should be. It's in be. the Blu-ray. Trip. Yeah, it's those <laughs> in the steel book. It's, it's like a, it's like a semi. The Criterion Collection edition of of Con Air. Um, <laughs> you can track the continuity. But of they, the film. you know what, guys, they never get to that maximum security prison. No, spoiler they do not. Alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, because a group of prisoners decides the worst of the worst, as Jake said, decides to hijack the plane, and it's up to Cameron Poe and John Cusack as Vince Larkin. Of the D, what? No, he's he's from he's the U.S. Marshal. Yes, he's from the Marshal's office, and uh, Cole Meany. I don't even know his character's name because the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, "That's Cole Meany. That's O'Brien. That's O'Brien. <laughs> Just dude. call him O'Brien." And he is, uh, he is from the <laughs> DEA. And it's pronounced DS Nine. DS. <laughs> Get out of Thank here. Thank you, guys. Thank uh, you. Go home. Right. Thank you. Well, Goodbye. That's Jake, <laughs> that's that's Jake Wiseman. <laughs> Signing off. The wisest man. Um, 
Con Air they're trying Cornelius. to bring down. They're trying to bring down this plane by uh, by pretty much any means necessary. So that's the setup for the film. And I just want to get oh, to. Brilliant. I want to talk about so good. how this setup is the is perfect for an action film. And there are people out there that look at Con Air as like, oh, it's this kitschy byproduct of the of the nineteen nineties. But really, this is a great movie, and this is not a ridiculous setup. If we're looking at great action movies, all the greatest action movies have like almost similarly absurd setups. Sure. Look at Escape from New York. New York becomes a prison island because crime has risen 400%. That is the setup. And is it the United Corporations of America, or is that something else? Oh, my God. It's something like that. Yeah, may be Escape, to L- Escape from L.A., but... Same universe, and they hire a criminal. They hire a criminal, Snake Pliskin, to to go into there, save like the president or something, and get out. A number one, king of New York. Exactly. So, this is this is a great setup, and I wish more action movie. Actually, the better action movies of the last few years have had somewhat similar kind of big, a little bit goofy setups. If it's not going yeah. for the hyper real, like not hyper realism, but the hyper grittiness of like John Wick, which is a great film, great action yeah. film, they kind of take the like you know sleek sort of action film. They want to go like they're like the transporter series sort of thing. And like, I think that is kind of funny in its own way, the John Wick series. Yeah, it has a sense of oh, humor about sure. itself. I don't think an action movie can be a good action movie unless it has a sense of humor about itself, which Con Air I think very clearly has. Yeah, I hope so. You have to. It definitely yeah. has a sense of humor about itself. Now, does when it you know s- that it's as racist as it is? Ah, yeah. I don't know. And that's still debatable. But, like, I mean, I was watching that shit, and I was like, hmm, hmm interesting. Interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, if you have uh, John Cusack running around in socks and sandals, then you must have a decent sense of humor about yourself. Fair uh, point. Let's talk about these characters. Let's talk about these characters. Because the, as I like what you said, Jake, about how each prisoner – you don't really get a huge backstory. You get you get some, you know, idea of who they are. Like you, you know what they like to do and that that is their goal. Yeah. Yes. Right? They're defined by their criminal pasts. But they exactly. But they're in prison right now. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right now, they're in prison, but yeah. they're about to be free so they can go off and and do more prison worthy things. I I suppose so. They're I don't about know to if take it's over. ever like really specific as to what a lot of them want to do. I think it's pretty specific what Johnny Vanty Trace wants to do. Oh I yeah. Think he comes straight out and says that and they stop that, which is good. Uh but like Dave Chappelle's introduction is really bad. And I noticed that yeah. uh I actually read that Dave Chappelle's his lines were largely improvised in oh, okay. that movie. But just his introduction where like the white uh security guard or whatever is just like berating him for existing, and then he's just like, "All right, now you're now you've been introduced. Get on the plane." It's interesting, but it was twenty years ago, and it's yeah. not like excusing anything, but it definitely. I've been watching some movies from like fifteen, twenty years ago, the ones that I remember from high school, mm-hmm. and things have definitely changed. And it's, I don't know, it's I, a mixed I, bag. It is because for everything that's bad about this stuff like bad effects or missteps there was this kind of like willingness to be original to figure out what was going to make the money and then Mm -hmm. once marvel came around they kind of figured out how to make the money yeah right yeah conair is an experiment 
Kind of, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's like I said, seventy-five million dollars for an all, a completely original action film, which at the time wasn't crazy. In the late '90s, that's not crazy. There was no. all sorts of those kinds of movies. The best part of Con Air, and one of the reasons why I think it succeeds through the years for us, is because it's mostly practical. Like, mm-hmm. there's no. I don't think there's a computer or what. However, whatever computer is in there is really kind of hidden. Pretty yeah, it's well. very subtle. <clears throat> like that plane Behind, was real. Yeah, they're on a plane. Like they really they throw that car through you know they do all sorts of shit to that car mm-hmm. which is really cool and like there's all sorts of things going on in the movie that are practical and actually happening and fighting and and it's and it's super cool like yeah. it's it's a lot of fun to watch um with the prisoners yeah i really Let's get back to character yeah character, character work. the deep character like work. my character is that i need insulin Right? <laughs> like, yeah, what else? What's he's it, baby a kind o. of a sweetheart because he's the best friend, but mostly everything that comes out of his mouth is like, you better get me my insulin or I'm going to die. He's, and he spends the entirety of the flight almost dying, right? That's true. Yeah. And yeah. then Nick Cage is like, man, I really want to get back to my daughter, <laughs> but I'm going to risk it all because my buddy might die from no insulin. Yeah. And then he, like, finds it in an abandoned fucking desert or something. And that's, so, and that's, I don't mean to curse. That's uh, fine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> It's that, and that's interesting because it makes Cameron Poe such a such a great character. Is that he he does the right thing at all times. He could leave and go to his family, which is right in the uh, you know in one sense that of it because like layover. Yeah, yeah, when you go to he's like I can get off this plane right now. Yeah, um, he got hosed by the system, but that didn't ever sway him from his. No. Yeah, you know, conventions. He, of he right knew or that wrong. the right thing to do was to help his friend that he made in uh, in prison who needs insulin, and he's like, you know what? I'm, and then by default, stop that damn plane. But he's gonna pretend to like be friends with Cyrus and try and get his favor too. Yeah, and he's gonna always pronounce the word daughter as daughter. Daughter. He's just gonna keep the bunny. He's gonna keep on going. I do want to. I, I do really want to commend his. Uh, his accent, because it is, I think it's pretty great. What? <laughs> and, oh, could you imagine Cameron Poe without an accent? That was a no. choice. That well, was a, no, that was a great not. choice. Yeah. You, like, hmm, this is set in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> that's my. That's the answer. It makes you wonder what kind. What kind of uh, work went into that? Yeah. You know how hard did he try to actually nail an Alabama? Oh, I bet he worked hard. Accent. Well, this is Nicolas Cage. I mean, he's a he's auteur. He came fresh off of The Rock, right? Like, he, he yeah. closed The Rock and then went to Con Air the next day, I'm pretty sure. Really? Right? I think so. Did, did, he was, was a hot item. Older? Yeah. Oh. First Michael Bay. Or no, it's not. It's the second Michael Bay. Bad Boys 1. And Jerry right. Bruckheimer did that one as well, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so he was, he was like, the, the guy. And um, I just want to point out that the the guy that that we've been talking about that needs the insulin, his best be- buddy on the plane, that's uh, my Kelty Williamson, oh. who you may know as Bubba from oh. Forrest Gump. Oh. And I and I it was so weird when I recognized him. I was just like, holy cow, he's ba- baby. O is Bubba. Good for him. Yeah, he's a great actor because I would never have known that necessarily. Like those two characters are very different. Mm-hmm. I would say, and but also like he's definitely being cast as like the best friend who's, who's needs dying help of the whole time. Yeah. yeah, he's the one that that's gonna bite the dust. He's the one that's gonna bite the dust. Um, so in in terms of '90s action films, where does this sit? 
for you guys. Oh, it's up there. It reminds me of the, like, when you think of people satirizing action movies because they are very upfront about what they're talking about and uh, always presenting very clear-cut explanations for what's happening so the dads in the audience don't get lost. (laughs) Con Air is unapologetically that, and it's not satire. No, not at all. That is that was my impression that I got of this movie while I was oh, watching it. That any satire is like a a runoff, like some sort of not like that nuclear it is, runoff, but like it's, it's not just intentional. Conair like is that act. It's not the action movie that they're all making fun of, but it just is yeah. of that ilk. Yeah, yeah. unapologetically. Yes, it, unapologetically. It knows exactly what it is. I think it's yeah. like Speed. You don't like those dads falling asleep. No, yeah. and and you go back and watch one of its contemporaries, Speed with Keanu Reeves, sure. like. Uh, it's it's the same thing. What a what an, bont. yeah. What an odd concept. You're on a bus that has a bomb. Why would a terrorist like do such a complicated plan? But you could argue that. Excuse me. Um, you could argue that many ideas from Con Air probably came from Speed. Like, why would you cast John Malkovich in this role? Hmm. Because they cast Dennis Hopper in the Cyrus last the yeah. Get a serious Brilliant. actor. You get some that's known for being a lunatic. Maybe they tried to get Kevin Spacey first. Who knows? I would have loved to see Kevin Spacey as Cyrus the Virus. I would have I watched Kevin Spacey in either of those movies. I wouldn't give up Dennis Hopper for anything in Speed. But like, and I wouldn't have given Kevin up. Kevin Spacey would have done pretty well. Yeah, I wouldn't have given up John Malkovich here right. because him as Cyrus no. the Virus is just so – he's just like, is if John that, Malkovich dead behind the eyes? If that dick jumps out of your pants, you jump off this plane. Oh, Cy, Onara, Boosh. Okay. Oh my god. Hold on. Oh, that scene rapists, you're freeze for him. <laughs> when freeze he takes the cigarette out of that dude's mouth and throws it into the gasoline, it hits like the only patch of ground that doesn't have any it's totally dry. And then just an explosion from right some from the right screen just billows yeah, over. It's beautiful. That it's, timing. It's How do you wonderful. think of Anara? Sai Anara. Sai Anara. So you quick. Gotta be so in the moment. It's almost like there's a script. <laughs> And the, the okay, and the thing is, you were speaking about like that that sort of uh, you know it lands on the one patch where that where it's like gonna definitely ignite and it does the whole big explosion thing. I think um, Jerry Bruckheimer, although he didn't direct it, he produced it and directed by Simon West. But I think Jerry Bruckheimer definitely has his hands all over this one. It feels like a Bruckheimer film, and he nailed Bayhem before Michael Bay brought in Bayhem. He knew when to do the right set pieces. Like when they're introduced Bay exactly world, right? Like right. And and Michael Michael Bay Bay just took it to the took it to the limit. Like Bayo? Scott Bayo? Oh, me say bay. Oh my. Uh, but there, I mean, is this, is this Baywatch? Are we on the Baywatch, Baywatch segment? Baywatch coming, and I see you guys. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, but there, all the set pieces in Con Air, I would say, have like they just feel well done. Like yeah. it's never too much. I would say the only time it gets to be almost too much is when they're landing on the strip in Las Vegas. Oh my god! And, and they like and they're like fired. The fire truck and all that. Business. Yeah, and, and like, how rock. many people? How many people died in that? Like, if if Connor were real, how many people just died? Less than the Avengers, Tom. Probably, yeah. yeah. Honestly, <laughs> no, I don't. It's such a silly movie. Everything about Connor is so silly. 
and mm-hmm. and wonderful. And it does. I think it does hold up to that '90s like action thing. And because it's shot on 35 millimeter, like it's shot on film, and there's practical effects, and it's a huge crew and huge set, and they have a lot of money, so they can do it right. As opposed to something like I don't want to pick on it necessarily, but like I saw Expendables two. Yeah. Whenever I saw it, and that's also a Simon West movie. So yep. Okay. So really, I didn't even think of that as I was saying that. I love Con Air. Not a big fan of Expendables two. My whole thing with that was like, if you just have cameras everywhere, then there's no real art to what you're doing, because yeah. he's just putting up cameras and filming everybody. And yeah. At every, every angle. angle. Yeah. Which like you know Ron Howard's been doing that lately and stuff, and it's like I, I see what you're doing, and I respect it as like a producer but also you know conair is way cool because you had to choose where to put the camera and yeah. like what you're actually going to do with this there stuff. was intention yeah you can't just like blow something up and shoot it at nine different angles and be like okay we'll figure this out yeah but i mean that's not you can do that he does that people do that people do that so i i'm not one to say that you can't because fuck me right <laughs> When you get $75 million in Nicolas Cage on your bill. Here's my question for you guys. I don't know if I'm going to be stepping over you, Tom, is where does this rank as, like, on the Cage scale? Wow. Where in the Cage? On the Richter scale? Or wait, that's not. That's that's, the Andy. That's the Andy. Andy Andy Richter's wide range. Um, Where does this land? But, no, Nicolas Cage, you know, because it's – he's – it's such an over-the-top movie for him to be such a kind of straight man. Yeah, yeah. He that that is the best way to put it. He is the straight man in this. Everyone else is going like slightly insane. Even John Cusack plays sure. this like manic marshal. You know, this manic you know U.S. marshal just freaking out and like the he's whole time. yeah he's in a constant state of panic, which I love. I think John Cusack does a great job, but Nick Cage is surprisingly like into this yeah so, he is really into it so i mean he's done so many films i think this is probably in his top 10 yeah. honestly i think it, it really is that good i think if you're gonna watch a nick cage action movie it's it's pretty much this or the rock he's so or face off oh no ah although now that's you a put whole, me in a bind i mean that's that's the cage another episode of the cage that's yeah. another so, edition like, of the, i have so many things cage. to say about uh, about face off but yeah um i would say i like con air more than face off fair enough um is it better than the rock I that's think hard actual michael bay i think i like that more i think i like the ending of con air more than uh the ending of the rock to be it's honest. such a really? con air is just mm-hmm. an endlessly likable cool. movie yeah I just think that the I don't know that scene where that scene in the rock where they're like fighting over the biohazard material and then the people, you know, fly over the planes fly. over. I don't know. It's just it's you don't not like it when he shoves it in his mouth, and punches him in the face. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Listen, <laughs> it's not crashing a massive maximum security uh, aircraft <laughs> into the corner of the Hard Rock Hotel. True words, man. True words. Uh, 20, 20 fantastic years of Con Air. If you Thank haven't seen you. Con Air, go see it. Like it's it's actually streaming on Hulu right now. It sure is. Go watch it. If I don't think you even need a subscription necessarily. It just has commercial breaks. Oh. But um, if you have a subscription to Hulu, just go watch Con Air. It's incredibly fun. It is a great Nick Cage movie, and it kind of reminds people that Nick Cage was a blockbuster star. He was a big deal. He wasn't always on the USS Indianapolis, quality notwithstanding. Quality notwithstanding, yeah, was he wasn't always doing these like 
random roles. He was doing big Jerry Bruckheimer films sure. that were pulling in $224 million. That's, that's not bad. Money. That's, that's just domestic too, right? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, two two twenty four over a seventy million seventy five million dollar budget. Even if you double that, so yeah. you take your seventy five, you make it. You know, it's just it's just so incredible that a movie like this could be made. It is such a good movie. Uh, it's yeah. such a good movie. So, um, yeah, any final just... thoughts on Con Air? Con Air? Con Air? Con Air? Uh, <laughs> I just can't wait till I take the next ride on that red eye for the damned. Nice. Oh Thank wow! You. Yeah, I thought that would be a cool. Is, like, yes, little tagline. Can you Fan. hear the wind? Tie yellow kind ribbon around the old the oak trees. tree. Dad is coming home to his girls. Coming home forever. Okay. Forever. There are obviously <laughs> there are a bunch of problematic parts in that movie too. But one that really stood stuck out to me <laughs> is when we were kind of. I didn't want to bring it up then, but when he is seeing his wife at the bar and he like does that weird scenery, like pulls her close and he like starts talking to his to his daughter through her stomach. Yeah. And she like says his wife says something and he's like, Shh, can't you see him in the middle of a conversation here? And he's like, oh, what? You're going to become Miss Alabama. Well, that'll make your father awful proud. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, weird. so he tells his wife to be quiet and hopes that his daughter is like a pageant queen in one sentence. I can add to that because right after that, he's like, um, what does he say? He says she, she he gets into an altercation with those dudes mm-hmm. before they leave again. And then his wife's like. Yeah, that looks like the old Cameron. I thought, I thought you kind the of took, arm, you took yeah, care of that. I thought the army would have changed that. And I'm like, you're fucking 42 years old. <laughs> <laughs> like, when did you get into the army? And what? Would you, what did you change? What's to change? Was he, what, like, like, you're 35 years old. You have those those problems with you. The army isn't going to change it after. Like, okay. And then right, it also it. Imp- it makes him a less sympathetic character, I would say, because then he's just like, oh, so like, would he have been a criminal if he did not go into the military? I think that's what it's supposed to say is that it's not such a far stretch. I don't think that detail is super necessary whatsoever, but they that's do add it where it's like he was kind of there's something up before the military, mm-hmm. and then the military really straightened it out. But it's really only mentioned in that one line, so it's yeah. kind of like. Is he a con? Is he a hero? Is he Maybe air? it's that fulcrum point again. If a uh, character, is <laughs> incredible. So I, just use, I'm sorry, yeah, just using that. Ahead. My opinion of the movie. I personally really enjoy it. I could understand why people watching it now that hadn't seen it would find, like I said, you know, some problems there. Yeah. But overall, it's a great movie. Could never be made today, <laughs> and I'm so glad that it was made. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Jake. Uh, yeah, I mean everything that you guys have already said. Like it's a, it's brilliant. I, it's a movie that's twenty years old. So if there are things that are not politically correct or we are a little bit more evolved now, good. Like way to go, everybody. Yeah, I'm like, glad that we know have that past and that. own it. But then enjoy the movie for exactly what it is because it's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a great version of. It's a great example of what it is. Mm-hmm. And nowadays for a movie like that it will be all cg so if you want to see some shit really get blown up that's not necessarily a michael bay movie mm-hmm. or it's close to a michael bay movie michael bay does it too but now it's all cg now yeah now, yeah, now it's, it's all like the transformers half, right? I don't know. And... transformers is like real explosions i suppose but oh well well there it is <laughs> con air 20 years happy birthday thank you so much everybody this has been noco cinema here on wgm plus we are your guide to cinema here in the city of chicago and all around the world i have been your host tom hush and thank you again as always 
to my beautiful co-host, Connor Cornelius. Connor. Thank you so much, Tom. You're welcome. We'll go see Akira sometime. All right. Uh, You can catch us every single Monday on WGM Plus, but also uh, development. You can listen to us on iTunes. If you go to iTunes Podcasts, you just search NoCo Cinema. It's going to pop up there, and you will never miss an episode. It's going to be there every single Monday. It'll You set it up to download right to your phone, wherever you are. You could be in the car, at the bar, wherever you are, listening to NoCo Cinema. But, however, near or far. Near or far. But if you uh, if you want to catch more of what's going on on WGM Plus, there's so many great shows here. Um, Sound Sessions is fantastic. We've got so many great shows. And I think you can also get uh, regular WGM programming. If you want all of that, you can download the WGM Plus app. Just head to the App Store, search WGM Plus, and you can get all the episodes of No Coast there along with a bunch of other great programs. Again, this has been No Coast Cinema. Good morning, good evening, and good night.